Thank you, James and Jennifer and Alicia, for leading us in those songs. A Christmas song on Psalm 23. Love the timing of that, right? Let's open in a word of prayer. Lord Jesus, thank you for bringing us back to a corporate gathering of raising our voices together, praying together, and giving our attention to your word together so that as we leave here today, we can encourage each other together with the truths of your sufficiency, uh, the amazement of you as our great shepherd. Thank you for this Lord's Day. It's been a good day. We're excited about this season. We're looking forward to our services, uh, not only this coming Wednesday for prayer and study, but also our Christmas celebration service on Sunday morning. Uh, Lord, we pray that we'll have many visitors so that the gospel will continue to go out uh, through your people here at Calvary. Open our eyes now, clear our hearts and minds of distractions and worries, and may your, your word bear fruit in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Open your Bibles with me this evening to Psalm 23. Psalm 23. As you know, my, or you may, may know, you may recall, you may not, my dad was a businessman here in the metro Detroit area. Uh, two different companies he helped start. One was a design company and for the auto industry uh, for welding fixtures. And then another one was actually a shop that assembled parts of different assembling lines regarding welding fixtures. I'm not sure I understand everything I just said, but that's, that's what it was. And uh, I don't even remember where my, the, the, I remember where one of the buildings was. It was right on 14 Mile Road near John R. Uh, but before that, it was in a smaller shop. Uh, there was a front drafting room and then a back, very spacious kind of warehouse work, work area. And there were vehicles in that area. And when I was a a uh, little kid, maybe, well, probably early middle school, late elementary, my dad would let me go with him into the shop on Saturdays. I was his excuse to work on Saturdays. And, uh, and I always loved to go, get my dad to go back into that big warehouse area of craft industries. And there was a pickup truck in there that belonged to the company. And, uh, and, and, and I asked my dad, I said, can I, can I start that car? Just a kid, maybe 11, maybe 12. Can I start that car? I don't know how to do it. You gotta, you gotta turn the key, right? And you gotta, you gotta press on the gas pedal. And and my dad uh, said, "Sure, you can do that. You can do that." And so he was. I opened the door, got in. I left the door open. Dad was standing there by the door to make sure I didn't mess up something so simple as a young guy. And uh, for some reason, in this old pickup truck, whoever had it last had left it in drive. And so I turned that key, pumped that gas pedal, it started all right, and I took off across that warehouse. And my dad was, I just remember, dad was running alongside of me, I think I shared this with you before, he's running alongside behind the open door, keeping it open, trying to reach in, and, and I don't know what he was going to do, uh, maybe, I don't know, hit the brake pedal or something, but he was panicking because I'm just like, wow, this is all happening fast. Fortunately, there was nothing in front of me in the warehouse except probably about 70 to 100 feet away, there was a cement wall coming up. And so I'm panicking. I'm like, wow, this is going fast. This is happening fast. There's dad running alongside, keeping the door open. And oh, there's a wall coming up. And I only had two choices to fix the situation. There were two pedals on the, on the floor. My foot was holding down one of those pedals, the gas pedal. 
I only had one other option to fix it. It, it wasn't too complicated, so I released my one pedal when I figured out that wasn't helping the situation, and I pressed the other one just as fast, just as hard. And it came to a screeching halt, a good safe distance still from the wall. Shortly after that, my dad crashed into the door. <laughs> and, uh, and he was fine. I mean, his, he was disheveled. His glasses were crooked and all that. And I'm just like, you know, what just happened? And he, he was amazed. He says, how did you do that? How did you know to do that? I said, well, the one pedal was getting me in trouble. I figured the other one would get me out of trouble. And, uh, and he was impressed that day. And I didn't get to start the truck again until I was 16. Um, so I blew that chance, but it wasn't on me. It was on the bozo that left it in drive, I guess. But I, I just never forget that because my dad was trying to save me, and, uh, and then I saved both of us, right, um, by hitting the right pedal. I only had two choices. There was a gas pedal and there was a brake pedal. And, uh, but there, one thing's for sure, if I didn't get it right, pretty soon everything was going to crash, literally. There were only two choices in that moment. And that reminds me of where we left off last Sunday night as we were talking about heart idolatry. And I left you with this statement. I put it in your notes for this evening to start us out. Just this reminder. Every sinful choice I make is sourced in idolatry. Every sinful choice. I mean, if you look at it, if I'm finding myself in a crisis, if I'm finding myself in a panic, if I'm finding myself, if you're finding yourself in a storm, you really just have two choices. And if things continue to go bad in your storm or in your crisis, is it possible, is it possible your foot is on the wrong pedal? You know, pushing that gas pedal over and over again is not going to change the result. I will get a consistent result of acceleration towards destruction. It's not until I stop choosing that pedal and I find that brake pedal, I find a different option, that things might get better. You know, I think of that illustration and I think of our reminder here that every sinful choice I make is source of idolatry. And, it, and it's like, well, maybe, just maybe, that, that is setting us up to understand why we continue to get into tailspins during our crises in life. Could it be because we are consistently reaching for idolatry? And we need to take our foot off of that pedal and find a different pedal to hit if we want a different result. You know, I, I mentioned two passages to you last week when I gave you that reminder that every sinful choice I make is sourced in idolatry. One of those passages was James chapter 4, verses 1 through 4. But another passage I gave to you, just by way of reminder, was Jeremiah chapter 2, verses 12 to 13. And I think this is a very vivid illustration. I want to read this text to remind you of what it says. There's only two pedals. Or there's only two types of cisterns that hold water. And it's what we see here in Jeremiah 2, 12 to 13. I'll start in verse 11. Has a nation changed gods, or pedals? When they are not gods, my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Be appalled, O heavens, at this, and shudder. Be very desolate, declares the Lord, for my people have committed two evils. Number one, they have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. I, I make the water, and it bubbles up here, and I contain it for you. 
My people have committed two evils. They've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, in order to cut for themselves, invent themselves cisterns that are broken cisterns and can't even hold water. And that's, a, that's the atrocity of idolatry. I take my foot off of the God pedal, if you will, which if I would ke- stay faithful on the God pedal, then things are going to end up in a way that will please God and he will sustain me. I take my foot off of that and I start pressing on a pedal that I invented and that pedal can't even produce water, let alone hold water. The destination is not going to be pleasant in that situation. I stand behind that statement. Every sinful choice I make is sourced in idolatry. But I just don't want you to hear my voice on that and even Jeremiah's. I recommended a book to you last week called How People Change. It's written by two authors together. Paul Tripp, you know his name. And he wrote it with a biblical counseling colleague he works with named Tim Lane. How People Change. I want to give you another quote from that book in just a little bit. But I I want you to remember the name Paul Tripp. Because Paul Tripp wrote a book, Whiter Than Snow. And he's talking in Whiter Than Snow about idolatry and our mistakes and our, our, our chaos in our lives. Listen to this quote by Paul Tripp. The desire to be God rather than to serve God lies at the bottom of every sin that anyone has ever committed. Sin isn't first rooted in a philosophical debate of appropriateness or healthiness of a certain ethic, no, Sin is rooted in my unwillingness to find joy in living my life under the authority of and for the glory of another, with a capital A. Sin is rooted in my desire to live for me. It's driven by my propensity to indulge my every feeling, satisfy my every desire, and meet my every need, end quote. He's right. He's right. Every sinful choice I make is sourced in idolatry. And so what happens when we are not content with God is we look for something else to make us content. We call them synthetic messiahs, with a little m. And we find out that when it comes to synthetic messiahs, things in people and, 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 and positions and, 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 and relationships, things that we choose for our contentment instead of God, we find out that they don't usually last long. As far as an answer to our trials, it's like that Halloween bubble gum you used to get in your bags when you trick-or-treated, if you did that. It's, it's a real cheap bubble gum. It tastes good for about 10 seconds, and then it's bland. You might as well chew on clay. We find out, in all seriousness, that when we choose a lesser God than the true God for our contentment and our help, it's like that. Synthetic messiahs wear out fast. And after consistently running to a synthetic Messiah of our own making, we find ourselves still alone in our trials. We find ourselves burned. And once again, we find ourselves trying to look for yet another way to make life work by ourselves. You know, as you say, is this supposed to be an encouraging sermon introduction? It is. But we have to get to a place where we're being honest with each other. 
I mentioned this author last time. His name's David Paulison. He's with the Lord now. He once wrote an article for the Journal of Biblical Counseling with this title. The name of the article was Sane Faith in the Insanity of Life. I'll put that link in the news and prayer on Tuesday for you to click on and read. Sane Faith for the Insanity of Life. In that article, David Paulison writes something that he calls the Anti-Psalm 23. I want to read the Anti-Psalm 23 to you. This is how we practically read that psalm when we're not content with the great shepherd in our life. So this is credited to Dave Paulison, the Anti-Psalm 23. Here it is. I'm on my own. No one looks out for me or protects me. I experience a continual sense of need. Nothing's quite right. I'm always restless. I'm easily frustrated and often disappointed. It's a jungle, and I feel overwhelmed. It's a desert, and I'm thirsty. My soul feels broken and twisted and stuck. I can't fix myself. I stumble down some dark paths. Still, I insist, I want to do what I want, what I want, when I want, and how I want. But life's confusing. Why don't things ever really work out? I'm haunted by emptiness and futility, shadows of death. I fear the big hurt and the final loss. Death is waiting for me at the end of every road, but I'd rather not think about that. I spend my life protecting myself. Bad things can happen. I find no lasting comfort. I'm alone, facing everything that could hurt me. Are my friends really friends? Other people use me for their own ends. I can't really trust anyone. No one has my back. No one is really for me, except me. And I'm so much all about me, something that sometimes is actually sickening. I belong to no one except myself. My cup is never quite full. I'm left empty. Disappointment follows me all the days of my life. Will I just be obliterated into nothingness? Will I be alone forever, homeless, free-falling into void? Sartre said, hell is other people. I have to add, hell is also myself. It's a living death, and then I die. That's the anti-Psalm 23. It's a little different than the real thing, isn't it? The real thing is waiting for you in your Bible on your lap right now. Let's read the real Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want, I shall not lack. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. 
He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You have anointed my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely, goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Forever. You see, you have right here in Psalm 23, this familiar psalm that we're wrestling away from the funeral homes and bring them to our living rooms and our SUVs to walk with us through life. You have in this psalm an alternative to your heart idolatry, an alternative to your ruling lusts. You have here the alternative to your synthetic messiahs. You have here the ultimate correction of your worship disorder. And it's not a thing, it's a person. It's your shepherd, it's your host, and he's your father. And let me say something about him. He lasts. It's at this point we usually get a little nervous, right? We get a little nervous. Because we've run to our synthetic messiahs for so long, regardless of the disappointment that our synthetic messiahs are. When we find ourselves in a crisis, when we find ourselves in a storm of life, whether it's in our own heart, with our struggles, whether it's with someone else in a relationship, whether it's with difficult circumstances, we run and run and run and wear a path to our synthetic messiahs. And they never satisfy long term. Never. But we still run to them. Some run to drinking to numb it or to just have a break only to have the buzz wear off and your problem is only more intense now. Some run to pornography and indulge. But oh my goodness, when you, that session is over, now you still not only have your problem that you were running from, but now you have heaped onto that guilt and more lying. Some run to control, where they're just like, I uh, shame on, on you if you trick me, shame on me if you do it twice, and I'm just going to take control of everything in my life and and everyone in my life, and I'm going to make sure I shape everything, the whole narrative, into my liking and my safety, only to see that it doesn't last, and it actually makes things worse. Some people run to the synthetic Messiah of obsessive and even atoning behavior by neglecting their bodies or abusing their bodies with food, or with cutting, or with embedding. A feeling like, well, if I punish myself for how much of a wreck I am, maybe, maybe the sun will come out then, only to find out that abusing our own bodies only makes things worse and the hate stronger. Some people go to hoarding. Some people go to money. 
Some people run to ministry busyness to escape other areas of their life they should be concentrating on. Some people run to relationships, friendships, social media, the internet. Get the point? We keep running to the same things. We always get the same tentative and temporary results. And we find ourselves not helped in the long run when we keep running back to them. So we have a question at this point. We're a little nervous. If we're supposed to come back to this shepherd in Psalm 23, can he do any better? Will the long-term picture be any more satisfying? That's a good question. And my pastoral desire this evening is just to continue to read this psalm to you and lure you back to the right pedal. I hope you've hit the wall enough with the wrong pedal to be desperate. Because if you put the car in reverse and then keep hitting the same pedal, you're going to crash again. It's time to come back to your contentment with the true shepherd. Our series is a simple outline. We did the introduction last week, and, and I just have three messages I want to teach to you. The comprehensiveness of the care of this shepherd. In other words, it answers the question, can, can this shepherd handle anything I'll face? And the second part is the constancy of his care. In other words, is he always there no matter what I'm going through? And then the third part of our series is the crescendo of his care. Will it be this good into the future? Tonight, just that first one. I want you to consider with me for a few minutes the comprehensiveness of your shepherd's care. And let's see if we can lure you by the Spirit back to your shepherd. The comprehensiveness of his care. Our core question here is this. Can the the care of this shepherd handle anything I face? Can it handle the four biggies that usually send me in a very predictable way down the path towards my synthetic Messiah I've developed? Can this shepherd handle anything? including the big ones. The obvious answer is this. You're going to have to be the judge of that. You're going to have to be the judge. Hear him out, but you be the judge. I want you to see for yourself the promises and the activity guaranteed by the Psalm 23 shepherd in your life. I'm going to see four statements, four lines that will answer your question. We're going to see them in verses 2 and 3. Look at this again. Psalm 23. You say he's a shepherd, verse 1, that will make me be in a position of contentment. All right. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. And he guides me in the paths of righteousness. Those are our four lines to answer your question about the comprehensiveness of his care. Take that first line, number one. He makes me lie down in green pastures. I mean, you've recited that since you were a kid. What does that mean? Well, we know one thing. You're not the shepherd. You're the sheep in this verse. And it says he'll make you as a sheep, with all the other sheep with you, lie down in green 
pastures. There's a picture here in this line, and, and, and you need to understand this culture and this setting. These shepherds that were tending to these sheep would be constantly on the lookout, particularly as they approached winter and as they approached spring. They were looking for sufficient pasture that would sustain their entire flock, not just one sheep, and it would have to be a place of safety and nourishment and overwhelming resources. And if they could land that in the winter and the spring, they would settle in there and still never consume all of the needed resources during those two seasons. They would be so satisfied with the abundance of the green pasture that they would actually be able to, when they're not eating, lie down and rest. All their needs are met. And they can rest in safety under the watchful eye of their shepherd. That's the picture of this phrase, he makes me lie down in green pastures. That sheep lying down, that lamb lying down, has a full belly. And he's content. So what's the meaning of this line? The meaning is this, whatever you need he will overwhelmingly supply. Very simple in its statement, but profound in its weight. Whatever you, and we're going to have to talk about that word need, whatever you need, he will overwhelmingly supply. You'll be able to stay there the entire season and even rest there. You're home. But we've got to talk about that word needs. The word needs is talking about legitimate needs. These are talking about needs to survive and thrive to the point where you can relax, relax and rest. It's the shepherd that's going to define for you what you need. He's not asking for suggestions from you and from me. The shepherd knows exactly what we need. He knows the nourishment. He knows the volume. And he knows the need for rest. And your shepherd, when we come into the land of spiritual application here, he knows where to put you so that you will need his grace. And it's his grace that will satisfy you. It's his grace that will give you contentment and allow you, as the psalm writer says in the early psalms, lie down my head and rest. There's contentment there. It's your shepherd that knows what will cause you to, to need his grace, find his grace, and obey him by grace. Those are your needs that doesn't always call for pleasant circumstances. But if unpleasant circumstances get you to a point where he's all you have and you find out, wow, he's all I needed, then that's a good place. And you'll be satisfied and you'll be able to rest. Need gets to be defined by him. I know one thing need isn't, it's not relief. There may be seasons of, of relief, chapters of sunrises, if we can call them. 
But the end goal is not for Jim Newcomer just to find relief in a break. No, the need is for Jim Newcomer to be content with his shepherd. So you know what this line is? This, he makes me lie down in green pastures? That is speaking of comprehensive contentment. Comprehensive contentment. When I say comprehensive, I mean there's, there's nothing left out. You will never find a situation, you will never find yourself in a desert or in a pasture, but that your shepherd knows exactly what you need. He'll get you to that point if you follow him, and it'll be overwhelmingly satisfying to the point that you can sleep. Imagine that. That's comprehensive contentment. And we just have to realize that in order for us to know his strength, we must be in a place of weakness. It's the way that happens. Paul doesn't use the shepherd language in 2 Corinthians, but he definitely is talking about his weaknesses in a text that you're familiar with. He says in 2 Corinthians 12, starting at verse 7, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan, to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. Concerning this, I implored the Lord three times that I might have a different pasture. Concerning this, I begged him. And he said to me when I asked for a different pasture, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. And Paul's like, oh, I get it now. Most gladly, therefore, that's coming a long way from implored, most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I'm well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then, I'm a, then am I strong. Paul understood what comprehensive contentment is. It's not relief from difficulty. It's rest in your shepherd. That's the first line. He makes me lie down in green pastures. I'm asking you to be the judge tonight if this is any better than what you've been running to. There's a second point he makes, second line there in verse 2. He leads me beside quiet or still waters. He leads me beside quiet, still waters. Now what's the picture here? What's the scene for this line? Well, as you know, wells and springs and even rapidly moving water with its drop-offs and uneven bottom with rocks and boulders can not just be an inconvenience to a sheep, it could cost a sheep his life. He could break his leg on a rock and drown. He could fall into a well. What a, what a, what a sheep needs, what a lamb needs, is water that's shallow and it's gently streaming almost just above a still water. It's moving because it's fresh, but it's not threatening. What does this mean? This phrase, he leads me beside quiet waters, has this meaning. Wherever you are, wherever you are, 
he, your shepherd, will make it a safe place. Your shepherd will never put you in a place where it will just be your destruction because of a lack of care and concern from your shepherd. He can take the most difficult assignments in life and make them a place of nourishment. It's a safe place. This place might look like a hospital room with a bad prognosis. This place may look like your budget or your checkbook and how in the world are we going to cover our obligations this month. This place could be a ministry trial. This place could be a marriage. This place could be a hostile campus or work site for a Christian. And you know what your shepherd does? He's there with you. And he's going to say, while there's danger around here, trust me. I'm going to never leave you in a place where you are without me. I will lead you to the waters that are safe. What is this promising? What's this line promising? You know what it's promising? Number one, it was promising for, before this comprehensive contentment. Now it promises, number two, comprehensive security. Comprehensive security. Maybe that's why David would like to use words like he does in one of my favorite passages. I find myself reading it in sermons all the time, many times when it's not even in my notes for that sermon. My mind runs here. When David is on the run, he uses words like this in Psalm 18, 1 through 3, or 1 and 2 to describe God. He uses these words, you are my strength, rock, fortress, deliverer, rock, God, refuge, shield, horn, and stronghold. And he finishes in verse 3 with these concluding words. So I'll call upon the Lord. He's worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. In other words, with my shepherd being this in my life, wherever I find myself, I am safe in his will. The psalm writer says, I will guide you with my eye, God says, and afterward I'll receive you to glory. As long as you're in this life, the shepherd's guiding you, and it will always lead out through all the noise and all the danger to a safe place for your refreshment. He leads me beside quiet waters. That's talking about your shepherd. He never leads you over the phone. He doesn't send a representative in to lead you because he can't make it to you now. He's walking with you. Comprehensive security. And go to verse 3, though. We have our third line here. I hope you're reaching a conclusion here. And if he's better than your synthetic Messiah, number 3, we have this line in verse 3. He restores my soul. He restores my soul. What does this mean? Literally, this means he turns me back. The word restore is not just a, oh, I was having a bummer day, and he made me smile in my heart, you know, something mushy and abstract like that. No, the use of this word means you're heading in a wrong direction. 
and God brings you back to a right direction. He brings you back. He turns you back, and not just to a safe place, but to a place of true enjoyment. So what's the meaning of this phrase, he restores my soul? If you understand that word restore, and your soul is the, is the summation of you, it's the center of you, it's talking comprehensively of who you are, your inner man, who you really are. He restores that when it goes in a bad direction. So what's the, what's the meaning here? Whenever you stray, your shepherd will initiate a rescue. That's what it means. Whenever you stray, he will initiate a rescue. Now this is going to dovetail a little bit into what we've been studying in Matthew chapter 18, verses 12 through 14. Remember this text? Matthew 18, I'll read them to you. Just write down verses 12 through 14 of Matthew 18. What do you think, Jesus says to his disciples, if any man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go and search for the one that is straying? If it turns out that he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 which have not gone astray. So it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones perish. I wonder if this is psalm is, is in, the, in the background of our Lord's thoughts as he speaks these words. When one of his sheep starts going off in a dangerous direction, the shepherd comes for him. You know what we call this? We can call this a heavenly amber alert goes off when you go off into sin. Or when you go off into deception in a dangerous direction. There is a heavenly amber alert that goes off. And every resource, every agency, every citizen of the flock of the kingdom is deployed to bring you back. So, what does this phrase mean? He restores my soul. You know what this means? This is talking about comprehensive correction. Comprehensive correction. Job 5, verse 18. You know this verse. Job 5, 18 says, For he, God, inflicts pain and gives relief. He wounds, and his hands also heal. Or like the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 12, 7 through 11, our, our earthly fathers loved us, but they, they didn't do it perfectly in correcting us. But our heavenly father is 100% efficient and 100% effective in demonstrating perfect fatherly filial love, if you will, to correct us. It's not arbitrary. It's a rescue mission. Can your synthetic Messiah do that? But there's one more line. One more line. What have we seen so far? We've seen comprehensive contentment, comprehensive security, comprehensive correction. And number four, we see this line at the end of verse three. He guides me in the paths of righteousness. Say, so what's the picture here? How do we understand what that means in a shepherding world? Well, in that part of the world, there in Israel, if you've been there, if you've been to the Holy Land tour, you know what the wilderness can look like when you get off the main highways. You, 
you, you know that there's a lot of green that Israel has caused to come up in that part, but there's a lot of desert still left, flat as well as mountainous desert there, treacherous desert. And you, not only today but back then, could have actually parallel paths that go along each other. It appears they're going to the same destination, and they go in and out, and, and it's sometimes you lose sight of each other, and then you're back close to each other in those paths, but at some point... They will diverge and not come back together. And one of those paths is going to a good place. One is going to a treacherous place. How do we know which one to follow? There's one right path to one right destination. And it says, he guides me, he guides you in the paths of righteousness. What's the meaning of this one? Here's the meaning. Wherever you go, he will clearly identify his will. From wherever you stand, he will tell you your next step. Whatever chapter of life you're in, he will give you direction for what's right in front of you so that you'll be in a good place when tomorrow starts. And he'll lead you through tomorrow as well. Now his path for your life there's no guarantee it's not going to go through some deserts. There's no guarantee that you're not going to have people on those paths come out robbers that threaten and steal. There's no guarantee that the right path actually has more miles to it than the incorrect path that looks shorter. But we know this. At the end of the day, even if it's a longer path, even if it's a more difficult path, we will not regret having followed our shepherd on the right path when we get to the destination. And we will always regret the shortcuts, the wrong paths. His path for you may be difficult, but it is always good, or can I use the word here, righteous. What is this talking about? This is talking about comprehensive guidance. Comprehensive guidance. Help me here. What, how do those verses go in Proverbs 3, 5, and 6? Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. Look at this. In all your ways, acknowledge him. That means know him. Not just know about him, but you know him intimately. Like a shepherd with his sheep bumping up against his leg. In all your ways, know him. And he will, and the NASB translates it, make your paths straight. It doesn't say make them easy or short. And they might look crooked, but walking them couldn't be any straighter than it is. It's beautiful because of where it leads out. So, by the way, did you catch the reason for all this? Did you catch the purpose of these four comprehensive statements about your shepherd? It's tucked away at the end of verse 3, the last line. He does all this, why? For his name's sake. It's all about him. It's not for the sake of relief. It's not for the sake of ease. It's not for the sake of peace. It's not for the sake of our felt needs. It's not for the sake of your and my little K kingdom. 
It's not for the sake of our reputation. It's not for the sake of acceptance with others. It's not for the sake of relationships or respect. It's all for the glory of the shepherd. He's kind of invested in you. It's all about him. Psalm 33, 3. You are my rock and my fortress. For your name's sake, you will lead me and guide me. I love that. Psalm, that's Psalm 31, 3. Psalm 79, verse 9. Help us, O God, of our salvation for the glory of your name. And deliver us and forgive us our sins for your name's sake. Or Psalm 143, verse 11. For the sake of your name, O Lord, revive me. Remember the anti-Psalm 23 I read to you earlier? Dave Paulison comments on his own little anti-Psalm with these words. Quote, The anti-Psalm tells what life feels like and looks like whenever God vanishes from sight. He continues, When you awaken... When you see who Jesus actually is, everything changes. You see the person whose care and ability you can trust. You experience his care. You see the person whose glory you are meant to worship. You love him who loves you. The real Psalm 23 captures what life feels like and looks like when Jesus Christ puts his hand on your shoulder as your shepherd. Yeah. You got two choices, brothers and sisters. You can keep pounding on the pedal of your synthetic Messiah, whether it's lust or control, substance abuse. How's that been working for you long term? Or you have to take your foot off that pedal and put all your weight on the other pedal. The good shepherd. Your shepherd who doesn't have a name that starts with a small M, Messiah. It's capital M, Messiah. And your shepherd alone provides comprehensive contentment, comprehensive security, comprehensive correction, and comprehensive guidance. And it's all about him. Not you. You see, his sufficiency is not a currency for you to hoard. His sufficiency is a command for you to enjoy and trust. Those momentary choices that we face every single day, whether we run to little M Messiah or capital M Messiah, are getting more clear right now, aren't they? I didn't say they're getting easier but it's getting clearer. What a shepherd you have. So, maybe you've bought into these four lines, but now you have another question. And your question might be, okay, I see that, and I know that's a lot better than what I've been doing, what I've been worshiping, what I've been running to when I need to be saved and delivered. But is he always going to be there? I mean, I believe he's capable of all that, but is is he always going to be in my moments to do all that? Are there ever 
any exceptions where I will reach for him with all my weight, all my trust, only to find that, of all times, this is the one time he wasn't here. I mean, I believe he can do all that. Will he always be there to do it? And when you ask that question, I say that's a good question, and that will introduce us to our next study. But for tonight, go home this week. I'll send the, lo- the link to the anti-psalm to you and the whole article that surrounds it. The whole article is fantastic. I mean, he'll even talk about OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder, when it comes to Psalm 23. I want you to read this psalm, continue to read it every day, read that article, and think of the gas pedal and the brake, two pedals that you have. Which one have you been mashing all the time predictably? And if you wonder, ask the people closest to you in your life, because they know. They'll be honest with you. Give them permission. Repent, own the idolatry, and say, Shepherd, I need to get to know you all over again. That's your assignment this week. And as God in his kindness opens your eyes to the true psalm, instead of living by the anti-psalm, which you'd never heard before, but perhaps it did sound familiar, if God in his kindness opens your eyes to that, what a Christmas this will be to remember. This is the year the shepherd became sweet to you. Would you stand as we're dismissed in a word of prayer? Lord Jesus, thank you for allowing us to celebrate you, how patient you are as our shepherd. You know, we we, we turn to look at you tonight. We purposely by your grace, tried to look away from what we usually or who we usually run to when we're in a storm. And we were trying to focus on you with just these four lines. And you know what we found? You were standing there. You've never not been in our moments. We just weren't looking for you. Open our eyes a little more this week. And I pray that you will cause us to marvel and even be startled as these truths land in our lives in the midst of our storms this week. But there's a new calmness and satisfaction because our patient shepherd is opening our eyes to what he's been all along. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. You are dismissed.